You are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, March 29th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. The backers of bills making their way through the state legislature hope to protect people at risk of eviction and make honest pedestrians out of jaywalkers. A ruling from a California court gives the Congressional January 6th Committee new ammunition by suggesting Donald Trump engaged in crime. After regional news and weather, KVMR's Paul Emery talks Fed policy with economist Gary Zimmerman, and we end with investment advice from Mark Cunaberti. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. The state assembly has voted to extend pandemic eviction protections for tenants still waiting on rent relief. How big is that problem? Well, fewer than half of the nearly 500,000 people who've applied for rental assistance have yet to receive a payout. KQED's Aaron Baldessari reports. Currently, tenants who've applied for rent relief but are still waiting on payments could be evicted as early as April 1st. The state assembly voted 60 to 0 on a bill to delay those evictions through the end of June, allowing more time for payments to go out. The bill's co-author, Democratic Assemblymember Tim Grayson of Concord, said it would hurt both tenants and landlords to let those protections expire now. It would be cruel, it would be wasteful and unfair to subject Californians to eviction or the loss of rental income now when they have done everything that they have been asked. The bill now heads to the state Senate for a vote before it can be signed by the governor. For the California Report, I'm Aaron Baldessari. The COVID pandemic has taken the lives of nearly 10,000 nursing home residents and staff in our state. To honor them and to press for better working conditions, several dozen unionized long-term care workers held a vigil yesterday in the rain at the state capitol building in Sacramento. KQD's Sarah Hosseini has more. Ray Buswell. We work at Granada in Eureka. We lost 12 residents. One by one, the group of mostly women of color in plastic rain ponchos lay white carnations on a table in honor of a coworker, patient, or sometimes family member that succumbed to COVID. Caring for the elderly and infirm in skilled nursing facilities or patients' homes is already low-paid and back-breaking work, they say. But COVID and extreme understaffing brought many to their breaking point. Probably the saddest thing that I've ever seen is when they're passing and their family's not with them and they're asking for them. And you're there every step of the way and then you go home and you take that home with you because you love them and you care about them. They become your family. Sonora-based certified nursing assistant Kelly Oppenheim says she's thought about leaving. Fast food workers in her town make more than most of her colleagues. She's hoping that a push to create a skilled nursing facility quality standards board could boost wages and staffing and improve the quality of care, something she thinks will benefit patients and staff alike. SCIU 2015 says that one in 10 of its members have left the industry over the past two years, and half of those who remain say they're likely to follow. Union leaders are also calling for an end to COVID-era staffing ratio waivers. For the California Report, I'm Sarah Hosseini in Sacramento. 
Maybe like me, you've crossed a street a time or two or way more at a place where it's prohibited. Well, jaywalking could become legal in many circumstances in California if a bill introduced yesterday in the state legislature is passed. The measure by San Francisco Assemblyman Phil Ting would allow pedestrians to cross streets outside of crosswalks unless doing so creates an imminent danger of a collision. Ting says even though most people jaywalk from time to time, studies show police disproportionately proportionally issue tickets to people of color. Jason Saris of Novato, who described himself as currently homeless, told legislators he felt targeted for his street crossing habits. When I was cited in 2017, there were no cars nearby. The truth is the officer didn't stop me for jaywalking. He stopped me because I looked out of place. I had some bags with me. It was obvious that I was homeless. Sarah says if homeless people don't pay jaywalking fines, they risk losing their driver's licenses. The chair of the Assembly Transportation Committee, Laura Friedman, said she supports the bill in part because she jaywalks sometimes around the state capitol at night. Where I feel a lot safer crossing when I can see for miles that there's no cars around, but I'm a woman walking by myself in downtown Sacramento, and I'd rather just keep moving. So there's really good reasons why sometimes pedestrians are safer by using their common sense. Ting's bill was passed out of committee, but it faces opposition from law enforcement groups. Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill last year that would have repealed jaywalking laws altogether. Ting hopes this more targeted version will make it into law. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Personal Capital helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor, personalcapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. A federal judge in Santa Ana is ordering a controversial California legal scholar to turn over documents to the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrectionist riot at the U.S. Capitol. KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer has more. John Eastman was a law professor at Chapman University in Orange County when Rudy Giuliani invited him to speak at a Stop the Steal rally in Washington, D.C., hours before the assault on the U.S. Capitol. Eastman called on Vice President Mike Pence to send election results back to several states Joe Biden had legitimately won. So we get to the bottom of it and the American people know whether we have control of the direction of our government or not. Soon after that, the law school and Eastman parted ways. But the House committee investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the legitimate 2020 election results is demanding documents, including emails Eastman sent from his work computer at the university to Trump and his collaborators. Eastman sued to block the release, claiming attorney-client privilege. But federal judge David O. Carter said the privilege doesn't apply when the communications are intended to commit a crime and that Eastman and Trump were likely trying to commit a felony. The decision in so many ways is stunning. That's Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. What's stunning about it, she says, is Judge Carter's suggestion that the former president was likely involved in illegal activity. Criminal conduct that would lead to thwarting the peaceful transfer of power, that he tried to undermine an election, and that he really tried to implement a self-coup. In his 44-page decision, Judge Carter said the nation was founded on the peaceful transfer of power, something Eastman and Trump were trying to upend. 
The ruling is seen as a significant breakthrough for the House committee, which will recommend to the U.S. Department of Justice whether or not to investigate Trump's actions around the 2020 election. Monday's decision can be appealed, so it could be months before the documents are released. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. And that's the California Report for today, Tuesday, March 29th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. As always, thanks for listening and have a great day. Now we turn to regional news. This report is from the Associated Press and the Union newspaper of Grass Valley. Elections have become so polarizing that California is considering treating poll workers with the same caution as domestic violence victims by letting them keep their addresses hidden from public records. The AP reports that Monday, the state legislature advanced a bill that would add some election workers to the state's Safe at Home program. The program lets some people keep their physical addresses secret. It was originally designed to protect domestic violence victims. A survey of nearly 600 election officials from across the country by the Brennan Center found one in six have experienced threats because of their job. Voter registration files include home addresses and are usually public record. In California, state officials will only release that information to four groups, political parties and campaigns, academics, election officials, and journalists. But once those groups have the information, there is no limit on who they can share it with. The bill would let some election workers and family members apply to the Secretary of State to use a substitute address in the voter file. The bill would apply to election workers who interact with the public or are observed by the public. The story goes on to quote Greg Diaz, Nevada County's Registrar of Voters, as saying he noticed a change after the 2020 presidential election, marked by just a whole lot of disinformation that prompted a lack of trust in our offices. Last year, during the unsuccessful recall of Governor Gavin Newsom, Diaz said there was shouting and intimidation at county vote centers that resulted in some workers leaving their posts in tears. The situation boiled over in January, Diaz said, when a group of people supporting the recall of the Board of Supervisors stopped by the registrar's office to check on the status of their petition. Some employees told them the office was closed, but they entered anyway and were not wearing masks as required, according to Diaz. The county sought temporary restraining orders against three people, and a judge granted one of them. Diaz said he intends to hire law enforcement officers to provide extra security closer to the election. He said, I've never seen anything like this before. I think it's just part of the job now. In an announcement posted on Ubinet.com, the Nevada County Historical Landmarks Commission said that last week the Board of Supervisors designated the county's newest historical landmark. It commemorates the Chinese workers who were crucial to the building of the Narrow Gauge Railroad. The Nevada County Narrow Gauge Railroad Museum is sponsoring a plaque, which is expected to be placed this summer at Sacramento Street and Railroad Avenue in Nevada City. Turning to regional weather, mostly clear skies for the rest of the week with gradually warming daytime temperatures and no precipitation in the forecast. This evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, Partly cloudy, with a low around 43. Wednesday, mostly sunny, with a high near 59 degrees and a low of 42. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe tonight, partly cloudy, with a low around 28. Wednesday in Truckee, Tahoe, partly sunny, with a high near 53. Wednesday evening, partly cloudy, with a low around 26. This evening in Sacramento and Woodland, increasing clouds with a low of 48. 
Wednesday will start out cloudy, then gradually become mostly sunny with a high near 67. Wednesday evening, partly cloudy with a low of 47. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Next, KVMR's Paul Emery picks the fiscal brain of economist Gary Zimmerman in the wake of the Federal Reserve's actions earlier this month to raise interest rates. Gary looks into his crystal ball to see what the likely outcomes could be for growth, inflation, and the American consumer. This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kelb, wealth management advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street, Nevada City at rickkelb.com. Gary, we spoke two weeks ago just before the Fed met to make a policy decision, and you indicated the Federal Reserve might begin to raise its short-term interest rates by a quarter of a percent. Um, Has that happened? Yes, Paul, that turned out to be the correct call, but it was a relatively easy one because the Fed policymakers from Dave Powell to several regional Federal Reserve Bank presidents had been signaling well before the meeting that they were likely to start raising their overnight interbank federal funds interest rate target, which was essentially at zero to 25 basis points or a quarter of percent. So yeah, they you know, they did it. Um, and again, the Fed's our Federal Reserve is our nation's central bank, and their you know policymakers have you know limited number of tools, including you know short-term interest rates, and they, they use those to influence the financial markets and the economy. But you know, one thing I should point out: we can't expect instantaneously resu- instantaneous results on the economy's growth rate or the inflation rate from you know from this just one change. You know, normally it takes time between Fed policy changes on interest rate or even if they're buying bonds to, to move interest rates around uh, before those changes really impact the financial markets. Um, that part goes pretty quickly, but it's the, the slow part is that it can take you know months or quarters um, before those changes might impact the whole economy. I understand there was a dissenting vote at the meeting. One Fed policymaker wanted to raise rates by more than a quarter point. Is that unusual? No, it's not at all unusual, Paul. Um, Fed policymakers don't always agree, um, and they do make public comments and speeches that are, you know, important way for them to let folks know what's going on and what they think is happening with the economy and financial markets. And so it's also a way that they kind of signal to the markets you know, where they expect policy to be going, you know, based on the data and the trends that uh, that they're watching at the time. It's okay that they don't all agree, and it, you know, gives a more robust discussion policy debates, I think. It'll be several weeks before the Fed meets again. Uh, have they given any sign about future interest rate changes? Yes, Paul. Probably the most important comment or signal came from Fed Chair Jay Powell, who suggested at the press conference immediately after the meeting that the Fed might make larger than quarter percent uh, increases in their target overnight interest rate. Um, and it depends, going to depend on what the data are telling them and how the economy is performing. Um, he wasn't alone, though. I mean, there have been several other policymakers who've you know, noted their preference for raising rates higher or faster, or I think in one case, both. So some you know, made comments, public comments suggesting the Fed may want to increase their, you know, target rate by a half a percentage point in May and also in June. 
Uh, Gary, interest rates are still very low. So how much higher will the Fed have to raise their target interest rate before it is slowing the economy rather than still boosting growth? Oh, that's a great question, Paul. Fortunately, the Fed policymakers provided the information uh, in their projections for the economy that were published after the meeting. Part of that is they provide a projection for the Fed's overnight target interest rate, which is now one quarter to one half percent and for the end of the next uh, couple of years. So, for example, they're they're expecting at the end of this year, um, 1.9% would be the median projection for all of the policymakers. Uh, 1.9% is probably still maybe even marginally supporting growth. Uh, It's low enough. By the end of 2023 and 2024, they're seeing that that rate would be 2.8%. And that's 2.8% is, you know, marginally going to slow growth and lower the inflation rate. Um, So that's, you know, that's in comparison to what they think longer run, I guess we might call the a neutral rate that isn't you know, boosting growth or slowing it, and that wouldn't they are estimating at about 2.4%. So you know, higher in 2023 and 2024, enough to slow down things a bit. Okay, Gary, let me switch gears. Uh, will the Fed's move towards higher interest rates slow down the economy and slow inflation or just cause a recession? Yeah, the higher short-term interest rates, you know, will also push up longer-term interest rates as well, like 10-year treasury bonds and 30-year fixed-rate mortgages, et cetera. You know, and the impact of that on the economy over the next couple of years will be to slow growth. The big question is how much. Uh, but as as Fed Chair pointed out at the after the meeting, now almost two weeks ago, um, the economy is very near at full employment. We do have inflation that has moved well above the Fed's 2% inflation goal, you know, now pushing in the five, six, seven percent range, depending on which indicator you're looking at. So, you know, some slowing is certainly an appropriate policy at this point. Well, these are strange and unusual times, so we'll just have to see what happens. Thank you so much. And we'll chat again in two weeks. Okay, sounds good. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the San Francisco Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. On this edition of Money Matters, Mark Cuneberti offers some suggestions for protecting your portfolio. Selectively invest in solid-growing companies, skip the stock market fad of the week, and most of all, educate yourself. Then you'll have a better chance of limiting your exposure. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name's Mark Cunaberti. Icon investor Warren Buffett and the owner of one of the largest investment companies, Brookshire Hathaway, said in a 2019 CNBC interview, We don't buy the stock market, we buy good companies. In this tiny tidbit of insight lies tremendous wisdom. What Buffett is saying could be construed as... Don't buy the stock market because you think it will go up, but instead buy good companies that will continue to grow and subsequently increase shareholder value. Keep in mind, those are my comments there. There are many historical examples supporting Buffett's strategy as a sound one. 
The most recent is the COVID March 2020 market crash and its subsequent recovery. The Dow fell a stunning 38% in the first three weeks of March 2020 due to the onset of COVID. And when the stock avalanche abruptly stopped, the market started to rebound in a surprise V-shaped rally. When COVID caused the governments of the world to initiate global shutdowns in response, it arguably shifted the buying patterns of civilized man forever. Stocks of companies that catered to in-person services such as restaurants, retail stores, gymnasiums, and the like saw their stock prices plummet, while those offering mail order, online, remote, or other distancing type of service options witnessed their stock price slowly start to rise from the proverbial ashes. Extrapolating to Buffett's comments about buying individual companies instead of broad-based market buying, had an investor just bought a broad-based index fund, that fund likely had stocks that cratered along with the shutdowns. Investors that instead took care in buying only stocks, carefully selected with the shutdown constraints in mind, may have bested the broad-based indexes and possibly by many multiples. The term stock picker's paradise comes to my mind. This means blindly, and in my opinion, mindlessly, buying a broad-based index mutual fund or exchange-traded fund, known today as the popular ETF, possibly exposes the investor to some stocks that might rise, mixed along with some stocks that might get crushed. The net effect might be a portfolio that goes nowhere, while the evening news touts the stellar performance of a particular individual stock that sees customers flocking in droves to the online order desk. Although many an investor and or advisor might favor this typical shot shotgun approach to investing, there may be times when knowing a little bit more about investing than what is the most popular mutual fund of the day will yield superior results. Warren Buffett seems to think so, and his track record of successful investing is unparalleled. With that in mind, the current market environment of 2022 may once again be setting up to teach the inattentive or unknowledgeable investor or advisor that knowing what stocks to buy in the market instead of just buying the market as a whole may again prove that Buffett knows of what he speaks. Although many might argue that the average investor or advisor just buy a bunch of mutual funds or ETFs that cover the broad-based market, there have been times when doing just that yielded less than satisfactory results and at times may have even hurt the portfolio. It has been said the market is designed to take your money, not make your money, and that it is run by professionals. To think you can beat a bunch of Harvard-educated quants sitting in front of their computer screens all day is foolhardy. Education, by the way is the cornerstone of progress. Keep in mind the market professionals you're up against and running the whole shebang have a lot of the education part. Not to say an investor can't make money in the stock market, but knowing a little bit more about stock picking than looking up the flavor of the day mutual fund might go a long way in better securing your hard-earned savings. That does it for today's Money Matters. This is not meant as investment advice and is the opinion of myself only and may not represent the opinions of this radio station, its staff, management, or underwriters. I hold California Insurance License OL34249 and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Kuhnberg.
That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, it's Food Sleuth Radio. Broccoli is the prime suspect as investigative nutritionist Melinda Hemmelgarn and guest Dr. Jed Fahey are hot on the trail of phytonutrients in the food and vegetables we eat. At 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weekday at 6 p.m. Check out our website, kvmr.org, to hear expanded versions of many of our stories and interviews. Or listen to the KVMR Evening News and Steve Baker's Morning Updates wherever you get your podcasts. KVMR Community Radio gets support from you, our valued listeners, and from Sierra Timberline since 1978 offering a wide selection of contemporary to traditional American-made interior and outdoor furniture for our Foothills lifestyle. Open Monday through Saturday on Idaho, Maryland Road in Grass Valley. Online store at sierratimberline.com. And HBE Rentals since 1994, offering equipment rentals for contractors, homeowners, and businesses. Open daily and reminding listeners equipment rental is an environmentally sustainable option. HBE Rentals, information at gohbe.com. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Join us Wednesday evening for another edition of the KVMR Evening News. (laughs) 